G'day again, everyone. Now I'll pray as we get underway. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we might remember this morning, like we should whenever your word is open, that you are speaking to us. Uh, help us to uh, be ready to listen uh, and especially give us soft hearts that are ready to respond in faith and repentance as we always should when we hear you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Rick, I seem to be reverberating up here. I don't know if it's reverberating down there, but anyway, I'll just keep going. Uh, one of my favourite movies is The Magnificent Seven, and I'm, I'm not talking about the recent one with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt, if you're a more recent movie goer, I'm talking the one from 1960 with Yul Brynner and uh, Steve McQueen. Does anyone know that movie? He says... I'm expecting no one to answer yes tonight at 6.30, but I thought I might get some people here. Uh, anyway, it's a Western. It's about a poor little Mexican town, and uh, they've been raided by bandits every year, and they've had enough. And so they go off, they send three men off in search to find some gunfighters to protect them. Uh, every Saturday night in our family, we have the same... If we're, if we're having a movie night, if everyone's home, we have the same conversation where we go, what movie should, should we watch? And I say, let's watch The Magnificent Seven. And one of Eloise, Sophie or Sam say, we're not watching The Magnificent Seven. So anyway, but uh, anyway, they go and try and get help. They find these seven gunfighters and most of them come for the money. But in the end, they find themselves in this little Mexican village, even as half of them die, I won't give it away. But uh, it's actually based on a, a Japanese movie from, the, from a few years earlier called The Seven Samurai. So uh, if you want to see the original, go see that. But as I was preparing this week, I think this is the original in Acts. Uh, the original Magnificent Seven is actually here and we're looking at it now. Uh, it's in this little section we're in. Remember the first five chapters that we've looked at already focused on the apostles in Jerusalem and in particular on Peter. Uh, Peter and John were the, are the two that it really focuses on. Then you get to chapter six. So turn back to chapter six. Have your Bibles open. Put up your hand. Someone at the back will get you a Bible if you don't have it open. Go back to chapter six. Remember what happened at the start of that chapter. The apostles found themselves getting distracted from the main game, from preaching and praying. Uh, and so they appoint these help, seven helpers to help them run the logistics of the church. In many ways, it was the first parish council. Uh, and there was a great line last week from one of our student ministers where he said, these guys are the spreadsheet guys. And it just captured it for me. That's what they are. They're the accountants. They're managing the finances. But, and this is really important as we come to our AGM next week, uh, these seven were still picked because of their godliness. So it wasn't just that they were good at organising the money and that sort of thing. They were godly, they were full of the spirit and wisdom, it tells us. And that meant that even though they had this job of managing the finances and distributing the food and all that sort of thing, they couldn't but help get out there and preach the gospel. So to keep going with my movie theme, it was like they were picked to come along to help with the bookkeeping for the village, but when the fighting started, they picked up the guns and they got into it. And so last week, we met the great hero of the faith, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Whatever positive remembrance there is of Stephen, it is not enough. Uh, Stephen is one of the greatest heroes of the Bible and should just be remembered always. He stood up in Jerusalem he preached that Jesus is the Lord and they stoned him to death. But it's this, remember at the end of last week's passage, that incredible moment where he didn't care because he looked up and he saw his saviour waiting for him to welcome him home into heaven. Uh, and so you imagine at that point, the Jewish leadership would have thought, surely this is enough. 
This will kill this silly Jesus movement off. It's worked with every other sort of guy that's come along trying to be a bit of a revolution. Uh, surely that'll be it. They even up the ante, and we read that at the start of chapter 8. So look there in verses 1 to 3. Led by Saul, that's his Hebrew name. We get to know him better as Paul, uh, the Greek name when he, when he becomes a Christian. But, but he led the charge going from house to house, dragging people out of their homes. It's like the worst sort of stories we have from, you know, the Second World War and that sort of thing. That's what Saul was doing, dragging people out of their homes. People were being put to death. And surely they thought, surely this will be the end of it. This will kill it off. But the thing is, you cannot stop a movement of God. One of their own prophets had warned them about that in an earlier chapter. If this is from God, we won't be able to stop it. You can't stop the unstoppable gospel. Uh, Jasper last week, preaching at our service, used the image of trying to put out a fire with a big stick. Do you remember from last week? And he was saying, all you actually do is knock the embers out and they, they explode out. Well, that's what happens here in the book of Acts. The persecution didn't end the church. It exploded it out. The, the apostles stayed put in Jerusalem, fighting the good fight there. But the others sort of went pushed out to all the surrounding areas, led by the six remaining members of the Magnificent Seven. But they didn't go out to hide. They went out and preached the gospel to new people in new places. And so today we hear the story of Philip. For obvious reasons, I like this story. Uh, he's the second hero. Uh, he doesn't spell his name right. He misses an L, but that's, that's his problem. But anyway, so I've broken it into two parts. The first is, they're both the unstoppable gospel, but the first is even to Samaria. So come with me, chapter 8, verse 4. So Philip flees Jerusalem but he goes to the most unlikely place. He goes to Samaria. He goes to the Samaritans. Now, why is that so unlikely? Well, it's because Jews and Samaritans hated each other in that way that only estranged close family members can. Uh, because that's what they were like. So you've got to go back. Remember our series in, in Two Kings last year, how there was the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. When the Northern Kingdom of Israel got destroyed, all these other people got brought in. And so what was left was a mixture. And so for the true Jews, these people weren't real Jews and their religion was mixed up as well. They didn't listen to any of the prophets in the Old Testament and they even had their own temple up in the north rather than coming to Jerusalem. This is why when Jesus wanted to shock people, when Jesus wanted to offend people, the Jews, he said, I'm going to tell you the story of the good Samaritan. Because that is shocking. That is an oxymoron. There are no good Samaritans, the Jews would have said. So why would Philip go there of all places? Well, Jesus had modelled it for him. If you remember back in the Gospels, remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well? Jesus broke down all the barriers. Jesus went in to the Samaritans and preached the Gospel. And that Samaritan lady brought her whole town out and all sorts of people from Samaria were listening to Jesus. More than that, before Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he say right at the start of Acts? He said, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So Philip's saying, well, Jesus told me to go here. Let's go. And so he got that message, look at verse 5. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the wonderful thing is, it says, verse 6, the people listened. They paid attention with one mind. They were amazed by the miracles. They loved all the miracles that, that Philip was doing, but especially it says they listened to the message. Isn't that just the greatest joy? 
Isn't that what it's all about in the end? When you, when you hear that people have not just heard the message, they've listened to the message about Jesus. But the Samaritans already had a miracle worker uh, who they were following. They had a guy called Simon the Sorcerer. So look at verse 9. It says, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. You've got to have a special amount of hubris to call yourself the great power of God, haven't you? Uh, and it seems like this guy really did practice magic. It was probably demonic was probably something from the occult. Uh, remember, spiritual powers are real and dangerous. This physical world is not all there is. There are angels, there are demons. And it seems he had set himself up as some sort of miracle worker messiah, or at least a representative of God. But here you see the power of the gospel. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptised. Then even Simon himself believed. Isn't this just the greatest story? Isn't it just the most wonderful thing when you hear people becoming Christians? That's why it's interesting. I've got lots of messages during the week about the big day out last week. Not so many saying, thank you, Phil, for your talks. You feel free to send those. But, but a lot about how wonderful was it to hear from people who become Christians. Because that is what, that's what makes us shed tears, isn't it, as, as Christians. That is what we, we love to see more than anything else. Uh, it's what we long for. But there was something more going on in this incident. And I've called the next part of it, Is This Real? from verse 14. You see, when the apostles heard what had happened, they thought, we better go check this out. Samaritans becoming Christians? Really? So they send the two big hitters. They send Peter and John to have a look. And this is where it gets a little bit strange. So look from verse 15. It says, after they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, why does that seem so strange? Well, it's because don't you receive the Spirit when you become a Christian? And it said they'd believe. So how come they had to wait for, for Peter and John to come for them to get the Holy Spirit? In fact, you only put your faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. We know that's true from, from the whole rest of the Bible. Uh, this seems to suggest it's a two-stage process. You come to faith and then people put their hands on you and you get the Holy Spirit. This is actually what Pentecostal churches and, and charismatic Christians have always taught, that you need a second blessing. And they get it from a passage like this one, that you need a, a second instalment of the Holy Spirit, which is often tied to speaking in tongues or, or some other uh, thing like that. This passage seems to support that idea. But the problem is the rest of Scripture doesn't support that. And you've always got to read Scripture in the light of the rest of Scripture. And in fact, besides not being biblical, that teaching actually causes division. Because you end up with this idea of two levels of Christian. Uh, those who are spiritual and those who aren't. Uh, if you were a Christian in the 80s or 90s, you might have had Christian friends actually tell you that. I had. I remember a Christian friend saying to me, you are not spiritual because you don't speak in tongues. You've not had this second baptism of the Spirit. But no, the Bible is really clear. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. 
So why does this happen in this way here? What's going on that, that makes this an exception? I think this is about God validating a massive moment in the growth of the church. So this is the first time the gospel has gone beyond the Jews. This is the first time the, the gospel has gone, not to Gentiles, it's sort of to half Jews, to people sort of just outside. But the first Christians who were all Jews, remember, were going to struggle with this. They were going to go, hey, that, that can't be right. They, they should have to become Jews if they're going to be a part of the people of God. It was so ingrained in them. Can God really accept Samaritans? It's interesting, something similar happens with the first full-on Gentile conversion with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 to prove that point. And so here I think God wants to show this conversion is real. He wants to validate it and say, these Samaritans have truly found salvation. And more than that, God wants to show to the other Christians that they need to set aside their old animosities and welcome these people in as fully-fledged members of the people of God. And what clearer way to show that than to have Peter and John go and effectively reproduce Pentecost. That's what this is. It's Peter and John going and doing what happened for the first Jewish converts, now doing it for the first Samaritan converts. It's saying, these guys have got everything you've got. These people really have come to know Jesus. That's what Peter and John were showing them. But sadly, it wasn't real for every individual there. And so I've called this next part, you can't buy God's spirit. Look from verse 18. See, Simon the old sorcerer was watching everything going on and he thought, I used to be the big guy in town. Now it's Philip and, and, and Peter and John and I'd love to be able to do what they're doing. How good would that if I could lay my hands on people and they'd receive the Holy Spirit of God? And so he says, I want to buy that. Look from verse 18. It says, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money, saying, give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter is just appalled that anyone would think like that. He rebukes him. He tells him, you are wicked. You are poisoned by sin. We don't know whether Simon was converted or not. We, we just don't know. People always ask that question. I'm just saving it so you don't have to ask in the question time later on. Uh, the reality is sometimes people profess that they believe in Jesus for a time and then that profession is found not to be real. That, that is just a reality. We see that in other parts of Acts. We see that in the rest of the New Testament. Maybe that was Simon. Maybe he professed faith, but this shows the reality of his heart. Uh, or maybe he had become a Christian but, but this was a sin he was still struggling with and, and dealing with, and we don't know. This is the sad thing. We don't even know if he ever actually repented of this. Because do you notice there, he prays that the bad stuff won't happen to him. That's what he asked them to pray for. Rather than praying, I am sorry and seeking God's forgiveness. We don't know whether he ever actually found Christ. But he is responsible for a word in the English language, which will help you when you're next playing Scrabble. And that word is simony. Have you heard the word simony? Uh, it doesn't get used anymore, but it means to try to buy religious influence. To try to gain through money the, the, the favour of Christians, if you like. 
Uh, and as sad as it is, people can try from the other side, if you like, to peddle the gospel for profit. I think that's what Simon wanted to do. He wanted this gift because he wanted what other people got would give him for it. And you only have to turn on early, early morning TV to see some, not all, but some examples of that. God will judge people like that very, very harshly. People who try and peddle the gospel, make a profit out of the gospel. A worker deserves his wages. Our church rightly ensures that me and the other ministry staff are provided for. And you can see that at the AGM coming up. Uh, but the pastor or minister who makes themselves rich off the sheep, who, who tries to gain financial benefit from the gospel, uh, they need fear God's judgment, like Simon the sorcerer. But it's not just televangelists who need to hear this. Uh, it's every Christian. See, if, if the story of Barnabas versus uh, Ananias and Sapphira a couple of weeks ago, remember that story? If that was to challenge us to be generous, to be sacrificial in our giving, the opposite danger is to think that your generosity earns you something. To, to think that you give to get something in return. You know, I give 10 times as much as that person. Why doesn't the minister give me 10 times as much time? Or in the old world, why don't I get a plaque on the wall to show that I was the most generous giver? It's just a reminder, this little story of Simon, you cannot buy God's favour. And we've seen it in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? If you give to get something in return, well, your reward in heaven is zero because you've already had it here. But I would hate it if we finished Philip's story on the sin of Simon because the main point here is God's unstoppable gospel has gone where no person ever dared think it might go, which is to the Samaritans. And the next adventure of Philip brings that home to us once again. So come with me now from verse 26, the unstoppable gospel part two, even for eunuchs. Here's Philip doing this great work in Samaria when an angel appears to him and says, go and hang out in the desert. It's amazing how often God says to prophets and other people in the Bible, go and hang out in the desert, isn't it? Anyway, uh, but it says, go and hang out on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. So he goes and he waits and along comes a chariot. And the man in this chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch who is like the right-hand man of an Ethiopian queen. This seems totally strange to us, but in the ancient world, slaves were often made eunuchs, especially if they were hanging around with queens. I'll let you work out why. Uh, but also in the ancient world, they could rise up to prominent positions. They could become very wealthy. They, could, they were really free in every sense. So this man had effectively become the treasurer of Ethiopia. Now you might think this man was a Gentile and certainly he would have been uh, African. He would have been uh, similar to people from Sudan today is probably the area he, he would have come from. Uh, but, and so some people think this is the first Gentile converted. But Acts seems to save that for Cornelius uh, in a couple of chapters' time, the Roman. This man, I think, is a bit like a Samaritan. He's in, but not quite in, the Old Testament people of God. Uh, if you look at the end of verse 28, jump to the end of verse 28, it says, he had come to worship in Jerusalem. See, so clearly he, he had come to know the, the God of the Old Testament. He'd effectively become a Jew, what we call a proselyte or, or a convert, but he could never truly be a part of it because under the Old Testament law, a eunuch could not go into the temple. So he would have gone to Jerusalem and hung around on the edges. He, he loved God. He, he believed there was one God and it's Yahweh of the Old Testament, but he was like a Samaritan. 
He, he was on the fringe. But anyway, here he is. He's in his chariot and he's there reading the prophet Isaiah. I hope someone else was driving or uh, maybe it was parked on the side of the road. But Philip runs up to him and he says, look at verse 30. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I? I, I haven't got a guide or a teacher. And so Philip sits down with him and they read that wonderful passage from Isaiah 53 together. This is one of my favourite parts of the Bible, and it's not just because it's about Philip. Uh, they read about the one who was like a sheep led to the slaughter. They, they read about one who had justice denied to him. They read about one who had his life taken away from him, uh, one whose life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch says, tell me, who is this talking about? He says, I know this is Isaiah. I know it's written 800 years ago. Who is it talking about? And this is one of my favorite verses, verse 35. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. Philip said to him, Isaiah writing 800 years ago was writing about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. It was Jesus who they led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he would have then taken him back a couple of verses in Isaiah 53. He would have gone probably to Isaiah 53 verse 5. Though they didn't have verse numbers then. And he would have read something like this. But he was pierced because of our transgressions. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be there? Philip, Philip would have explained to him, Jesus' death was paying the price for your sin. He was taking the punishment you deserve for your rejection of God. He would have explained, Jesus rose again. He didn't remain in the grave. And now we know he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He would have explained how every person needs to repent and put their trust in Jesus. He would have talked about forgiveness. He would have talked about the hope of eternal life, that we will all be raised with Christ. And after he explained all of that, the man says, I want to become a Christian. He puts his faith in Jesus. And so they spot a little patch of water, probably on the side of the road. There wasn't a lot of water around there. They stop the chariot and then and there he is baptised because he has come to know Jesus. There's no second experience here. No need to wait for Peter to come and validate what's going on now. This man was a disciple of Jesus. This man was a part of the true people of God because he had trusted in Christ. The man who could never be quite included before, well, there's no boundaries now. Not that he know, now that he knows Jesus. And then straight away, it says the Spirit takes Philip away to some other place that needs to hear about Jesus. And we don't get to hear those stories, but I love the end of this story. Look at verse 39. It says, but he, the man, went on his way rejoicing. Isn't that wonderful? Why wouldn't he? He had started the day off excluded from the people of God. He'd left Jerusalem in his chariot with it ringing in his ears that you're not welcome in the temple. In the middle of the day, he'd been confused as he reads his Bible, but now he'd found eternal life. Now he'd come to know Jesus. What else is there to do other than rejoice? Well, as we went through Stephen's story last week and then Philip's this week, we don't get to hear about the five other members of the Magnificent Seven. For those movie buffs, Stephen and Philip are Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen, not the other guys whose names you can't remember. But uh, three lessons, three lessons I want us to draw from this today as we finish. The first is, remember that the gospel is unstoppable. Remember that the gospel is unstoppable. So many times throughout church history, people have tried to kill off the church 
and kill off the gospel every time the gospel grows. The gospel just keeps going out. People just keep being saved. And in fact, often when there is heightened persecution, that is the time the church blossoms. Don't get disheartened that our society seems to be becoming more antagonistic to the gospel. And can I tell you, my experience is, as the opinion shapers and as the media and as the people who like the sound of their voices are more antagonistic to the gospel, I'm finding people on the street are more open to the gospel. I don't think I've ever had a time where people are more willing to talk about Jesus than right now. So don't get put off that the, 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 the opinion makers seem to be getting more antagonistic. God's gospel is unstoppable. You see, like Philip, we know the God of the universe. God is in control. His word will go out. People will keep being saved. Second thing, remember that the gospel is for all people. One of my great joys in our church here over the last several years is that all of our congregations have started to look more like our suburbs rather than being an enclave of the Church of England, if you understand what I mean from our history. You see, how wonderful that the first steps of the gospel outside Jerusalem were to share it with people who weren't like them. And it's the people who had been excluded from the people of God, whether it was the Samaritans or a eunuch from Africa. And isn't that just yet another reminder, everyone needs to know Jesus. Everyone needs to know Jesus. And it's a reminder, it's our job to welcome anyone who comes to know Jesus into the life of our church. But the big lesson and final thing I want us to take from today is actually to see Philip as a model for us for evangelism. See, like Stephen, Philip is a hero of the faith. As I said, I was saying, these guys really are magnificent. They are, they are amazing. So one thing you're meant to take from these stories is to copy their zeal and, and, and to copy their, their amazing courage. Telling people about Jesus mattered more to them than anything else. They may have been appointed to look after the spreadsheets, but when they got the chance, they just talked about Jesus. But what I also love about these two stories of Philip is the way they model two different types of evangelism to us. See, in Samaria, it seems, Philip went into town, set up the equivalent of his microphone and speaker and started preaching. And that was the right thing to do. I, I actually really like it when I go into town. So I just go into town for a meeting or catch up with someone or something like that. And there is a guy that stands on the corner of, of George Street. And I was with another Christian as we walked past. And I said, oh, I wish he wouldn't do that. The other Christian said to me, I said, oh, praise God. I went and said, well done, mate. Keep doing it. You see, it, it takes everything to reach people with the gospel. It was interesting. On the other street corner, there was no one listening to this old white guy. On the other street corner was a massive islander guy with tats all over him. He was saying, and bro, you need to know the gospel. And, and, that's, and he had a crowd around him listening to him. But anyway, I don't know what that says. But you see, everything, there's every way to share the good news of Jesus. We need preachers. We need people who can stand up and preach to a crowd, whether it's 30 people at a life course on a Tuesday night or 150,000 people at Randwick Racecourse when Billy Graham did his thing. We need boldness and people to be bold, to get up and preach. But then the second story is different, isn't it? It was one-on-one. -on -one. The, the Ethiopian man was reading the scriptures. He had questions and Philip was there to say, can I help you understand? And I love that second story because that is a great model every one of us can follow. See, one of the best ways to help people is to invite them to just read the Bible 
And then if you have questions, ask me and be ready to answer. And any Christian can do that. So many people in our church have become Christians because a friend just invited them to read the Bible. But very few people become Christians just by reading the Bible. There are those wonderful miracle stories that preachers love to tell. You know, the guy walking down the street and a page of the Bible flows along, hits him in the chest and he says, look, oh, and it says John 3.16 and he drops to his knees and says, someone baptised me. That can happen. God's word is powerful. But most people are like the eunuch. That they say, this is intriguing. Can someone please help me understand this? And any Christian should jump at that opportunity. If you don't think you could, then I want to say to you, work at getting to know your Bible better so that you can. A great tip I remember hearing years ago is just get to know one of the Gospels really well. Get to know Mark really well, or Luke really well, John really well. So then you can suggest that for, for people to read and you know it well, so you can interact with it on them. Uh, I know I'm like a broken record, but do the intro to the Bible course when we offer it later in the year. So if someone says to you, I'm reading Isaiah 53, you can say, let me tell you about Jesus, because that's what we do in the intro to the Bible course. And if you still worry you couldn't answer people's questions, well, firstly, remember, it's just a great testimony to say that to people, to say, I don't know the answer, but can I bring you to meet with another Christian who might? I don't know the answer, but come along to the life course and you'll be able to ask Phil that question or, or someone else that question. But also remember, you only need to know a little bit more than someone else to be able to help them. Back when Sam was about six, his team's soccer coach had to step aside and they asked me to coach. I don't know why they didn't ask some of the other dads who are here today to coach, but they asked asked me to coach and I thought, I know nothing about soccer. I actually hate soccer. (laughs) I, I grew up playing both codes of rugby. I love football. I hate soccer. You know, I thought, what good am I? I know nothing. I don't, the offside rule, what's that? But then I thought, surely I know more than these six-year-olds, though. I know enough to know they've got to get the ball into that net up there and not into that one. And you've got to kick a ball. And surely I can teach some six-year-olds to kick a soccer ball that direction. See, you don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to be an expert to sit down with someone and help them understand God's word. You just need to be someone who loves God's word. That's all you need to be. You don't need to be a scholar or an expert to point people to Jesus. Any of us can be a Philip and help a person come to know Jesus. And I hope we get that from this story. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement it is to see the zeal and courage of Stephen and Philip for the way in the face of incredible adversity, they just got on with the job of telling people about Jesus. And though many of us will never stand before crowds preaching, Every one of us can read the Bible with a friend like Philip did here with the Ethiopian eunuch. And any one of us can help someone understand and help point them to Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to look for and take those opportunities like Philip before us. In Jesus' name, amen.